Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Heather Brilliant, the CEO of publicly traded Diamond Hill Investment Group. Heather became CEO in 2019 after putting together an enviable resume of experiences at other investment firms. As of the most recent quarter, Diamond Hill had about $26 billion of assets under management, but still considers itself a boutique firm. In this holistic conversation, we discussed Heather's experience becoming CEO right before the world shut down due to COVID, Diamond Hill's unique capital allocation strategy as it relates to returning cash to shareholders, how the firm differentiates its strategies despite lots of competitors offering similar products, the avenues available for the company to continue to build its AUM base, and the concept of building a brand within investment management. For full disclosure, I am not a Diamond Hill shareholder. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Heather Brilliant of Diamond Hill. As always, we will start this podcast off with a pivotal moment in the company's history. You joined Diamond Hill in 2019, right before the COVID period began. What was your first year like as a leader who was just trying to get her arms around the culture and business at Diamond Hill? Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. It was such a it's such a great question because uh, it was a very interesting time to start. So I had six months under my belt working at Diamond Hill before we all started working from home. And I'll never forget those first few weeks when we were all trying to figure out whether we'd have to go to working from home um, and how long we might be there. And so we all started you know, taking monitors home and things like that. Ultimately, we, we got everybody set up. So now we have essentially all of our employees with the same setup at home that they have at the office. But in the first couple of months, it was it was pretty challenging to get that all going. Going back to the bigger part of your question, though, which I think really is um, more about the the challenge that the company was facing at the time, we really had um, undergone quite a lot of transition as a company. So um, the founder of the business had stepped away. We'd had some other changes as well. And so I really came in in order to, um, to put Diamond Hill on the path to the future, which for us is really about uh, figuring out the right strategy for the company, making sure we had the culture that we really wanted to be able to have and reinforce for the future, and also that we continually reinforce how we can put client interests first in a way that I think is challenging for a lot of our competitors. And so we put a lot of um, focus on those things. In the first six months, we had meetings with every, um, you know, as many people as possible throughout the firm. Every group was represented. We had about 40 people come to these in-person meetings. And um, ultimately, it really helped us hone what we wanted our values to be and what we wanted our future strategy to look like. And we're three plus years into that period. I'm interested in what you guys have decided in terms of remote, hybrid, you know, hybrid, all in office. Like what, what as, as you learned a little bit about people's tendencies and, the, and maintaining the culture, what, where have you settled on that concept? 
Well, I do think it's an ever-evolving space for us all. Um, for us, we've tried everything. We worked from home almost exclusively for a year. In April 2021, we asked our employees to consider coming in about 40 to 60% of the time. And we've actually stuck with that guidance since then. And, you know, there have been some additional COVID scares where people went back to working from home more and times where we, you know, replaced some carpeting and, <laughs> and it was easier to say, hey, could you just work from home for a couple of weeks while we get this done? Um, than it would have been in the past. But ultimately, I'd say over the last year, we've really seen more and more people come in. And we have 130 people. So we've been able to maintain the flexibility that we want everybody to be able to choose what's best for them. And that's why we go with 40 to 60% of the time, as opposed to trying to stipulate certain days. It allows some of our uh, PMs and analysts to perhaps work from the office in the morning and home in the afternoon, or to really just make sure that everybody's crafting the day that makes sense for the, the things that they have to get done. And continuing on the culture commentary, uh, as a company, you've decided not to do quarterly calls, even though many public companies do. What does that choice say about the culture and mentality you want to build and maintain at Diamond Hill that you're, you know, you're not out there every 90 days giving people fodder to trade your stock? <laughs> well, one of the most important tenants of Diamond Hill that we hold very dear is having a long-term focus. It really permeates the way we think about investing, and it also permeates the way we run the business. And so quarterly calls, I think, while they certainly have some opportunities and benefits in terms of transparency, uh, we feel like we can achieve the transparency through publishing our quarterly 10Q, but holding calls, I think, really reinforces a shorter term mindset where you're being held accountable to something on a quarterly basis that may or may not go along with what you're really trying to do over number, a number of years. And so for us, it's just been really important, really ever since the beginning, Diamond Hill has been public essentially since its founding, and we've never held quarterly earnings calls. And um, if I have anything to say about it, we will not. Yeah, I, I happen to love that. That's why I asked that question, because, yes, of course, there's a lot of benefit to the investor to, to having that call. But what is it? What is that that 90 day rigmarole? What does that do to a culture? What does it do to an investment team? I mean, I just it's it's an I, I, lo I like that. Um, I like that you guys have chosen to be different there. And so you, you mentioned that uh, Diamond Hill has been public for most of its its life as a, as a firm. And most investment firms are not public. Maybe can you discuss the benefits and, and drawbacks of being a publicly traded asset manager? Yeah. So, I mean, I do think just to start with the drawbacks, actually, um, in fact, I think one of the drawbacks is it can bring you to more short-term thinking. And, um, you know, another drawback is it is there is a cost associated with um, completing all of the financial forms required that, um, you know, we have to fill out every quarter, even more frequently in some cases. And so those, I would say, are the downsides. And we've already talked about kind of how we mitigate the, the focus on a shorter term time period. And, um, you know, I think we've done a really good job of outsourcing where it's appropriate and keeping in-house the functions that we think really differentiate us in terms of, you know, our finance function and things like that. Um, ultimately, though, there are some positives. First of all, it, it does provide a high level of rigor. Of course, if you have to publish a quarterly report on your financials, you have to really make sure that everything is in top shape. And that's not something that every boutique asset manager can claim. <laughs> and so I think, you know, that really does hold us to a higher standard um, when it comes to making sure that we're being transparent about everything, that we are 
really using a high level of rigor in closing our financial statements every quarter. We have audited financial statements every year, of course, as required. And so some of these things I do think can be helpful pressures as well. Um, the other thing, of course, is I think a lot of firms in our industry tend to be structured as partnerships. And while there are a lot of benefits to being structured as a partnership, one of the drawbacks of that that I think we are able to benefit from is that we have much greater distributed ownership. So mm -hmm. every employee starts out at Diamond Hill as an owner of the company. It's part of how we onboard new employees and it's part of our ongoing compensation for many employees. And so we are really able to use the fact that we're public in order to, um, to use equity as part of our compensation. And have you found that allocators are more comfortable with you maybe than they would have otherwise been because of the public the aspect? I mean, do you think there's a business case for, um, at least in terms of distribution and, and, and getting more allocator partners? Is, is there a business case for being public or is that going a little too far? I think that's going a little far. Um, I would say most of our clients are comfortable with the fact that we very explicitly state in writing and verbally that we put client interests above shareholder interests. And we make no bones about that. Um, and we're very clear with our shareholders about it too, that in order to really um, appreciate being a shareholder of Diamond Hill, you have to really be able to um, appreciate that putting client interests first is what makes us a great firm. And so um, I very firmly believe it goes along with our long-term orientation. If we take care of our clients and make sure we're prioritizing client interests, then we believe that ultimately will be to the benefit of our shareholders, both employee shareholders and other public shareholders. And, um, and that's really the ethos that we use when, um, you know, when thinking about this. And in your previous response, you mentioned the topic of di differentiation, and, and that's something that I've thought deeply about, especially in the realm of public equities. So given how many managers and strategies there are for allocators to choose from, what are the avenues for differentiation for Diamond Hill? Yeah, I mean, I think there's really a few things that are critical. First is that our investment philosophy, I think, is um, not as common as you know you or I might think, because we're so used to thinking about intrinsic value investing and long-term orientation and buying high-quality businesses at, at a discount to what we think they're ultimately worth. Um, but ultimately, I think that focus is you know how we believe investing needs to be done, and that fundamental belief is something that I'd say we need to be aligned on with our clients when we're investing uh, on their behalf. And so ultimately, I'd say that's the biggest point of differentiation. Just do we have the investment philosophy that a client is looking for, where we're truly focused on intrinsic value, which is different than being a value investor, right? We're not just looking for companies trading cheap on a cheap multiple or um, something like that, that I think, you know, frequently value investors, or even if you look at a value index, can, um, it can really um, misappropriate the way we look for value, which is to really understand the cash flows of the businesses that we're investing in and try to be long-term owners of those underlying businesses or think like owners of those businesses. Um, so I do think that gives us a, a point of differentiation that does end up being quite meaningful. Um, the second thing I'd say is, I think we've built some very meaningful client relationships 
Um, a lot of firms in our industry, I think, are either institutional or they might be more kind of intermediary or retail focused. And I think we've done a really good job of striking a balance between those two, where we do work directly with institutions, of course, but we also do a lot of work with um, the home offices of broker dealers, wirehouses, private banks, things like that, that give us the opportunity to have um, a reach that goes beyond the number of advisors we could call on directly, for example. And so that's one of the reasons I'd say that, you know, I think we have a, a reach that would be bigger than you would expect for a company of our size. And um, it really gives us great pride because we're able to help more clients ultimately reach their financial goals and do so in a way that's really efficient for, for the way our business is structured. And you discussed distribution and marketing in that response. The longer I've been in the industry, the more I've understood the importance of having a marketing and distribution machine. Maybe you can talk a little bit about, you mentioned, you know, kind of the outcome that you have, that you have a balance, but I'd love to hear about the strategy that you guys have implemented to be able to achieve such a balance. So in 2019, uh, we made the decision to hire a uh, managing director of marketing, and um, she has just brought a whole bunch of new ideas and perspectives to how we think about marketing. And um, one of the things that happened when the pandemic hit is we literally um, on, you know, March 14th or whatever that first day is that we all started working from home. That was the day we kicked off a huge undertaking to revamp all of the technology and data that underlies how we use marketing with our clients. Uh, so we, we implemented Salesforce. We implemented a bunch of other tools that kind of supplement Salesforce to help us find people who are interested in investing the way we invest. And um, people who have a long-term, long time horizon, who think intrinsic value is how they would like to invest, et cetera. And um, that also led us to realize that, you know, this old model in our industry of internal sales and external sales really didn't make any sense. And so we actually took a an internal sales team of about six or seven people and repurposed everyone. We had somebody go to the trading team, somebody go to marketing, um, somebody went to investments. Um, and joined our, our research team. And it really was ultimately wherever they had interest. And it has worked out so well, because it really allowed us to take people who'd come into, you know, an entry level for, uh, role in our industry, really looking to move into some other part of our business, and help them successfully move into those other parts, uh, perhaps more quickly than maybe would have happened otherwise. And um, so that was a huge win. And then what we did essentially, instead of, let's say, replacing the internal sales idea was to use marketing to be able to um, better identify clients who wanted to speak with us or who would have interest in speaking with us to better um, send out materials that would be meaningful to the people that we were trying to connect with. And I think that's one of the best things that some of the digital marketing um, and data behind it can enable us to do as an industry is to put out things that are more relevant to our clients to help our clients better understand how we're thinking about the environment, how we're thinking about investing in a way that I think before we were kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall as an industry. Yeah. I mean, in, in a way you're talking about building the brand right through transparency and, and hitting the right, hitting the right uh, potential clients. And, you know, a lot of the firms that have grown the most, have established some pretty powerful brands. How have you thought about the concept of brand building within the investing realm? 
So historically, Diamond Hill has been a very quiet firm. And, um, you know, we haven't necessarily needed to be loud. <laughs> so I, I can appreciate how, um, you know, as the industry has changed over the last 20 years, um, Diamond Hill's, I think, done a really good job evolving as well. So, um, you know, when I came on, I'd say one of the things that it was clear to me has really changed about our industry is that building a trusted brand is a part of what our clients are looking for in order to be able to have confidence that we have the longevity to be there for them for multiple decades, that we have the trust that goes beyond just the one-on-one -on -one relationship we might have with them to really the whole company and brand and everything we stand for. And so we have we have invested in spending a little bit more time on things like PR. Um, you know, I speak at some conferences from time to time, and um, we we invested in our actual brand. So we um, you know we're still called Diamond Hill, but we did rebrand the look and feel of our logo and name, and just really tried to to modernize um, building that brand and building that trust. In getting to some of the trends that are going on in the industry, I think a lot of people believe that that it's inevitable that ETFs will continue to take share from mutual funds. Given that Diamond Hill has a big chunk of assets in mutual funds, I'm, I'm interested in how you think about that, that, that threat and maybe some limitations that people may not be familiar with when it comes to ETFs. Yeah, so I would say um, ETFs are a super interesting vehicle. Um, they definitely have some advantages over mutual funds, particularly that they can be traded intraday and um, that they are more tax efficient. And so I think that's part of those are part of the reasons why so many people have been drawn to trying ETFs. Uh, the issue that that we have seen with ETFs that I think is, um, you know, can't really be solved today, but hopefully will be someday, is that um, you cannot limit capacity in an ETF. So if you open an ETF, you are essentially um, required to take the assets that come into the ETF. Um, now, there are some things you can do, you could open an ETF, and then when it gets as big as you feel comfortable managing, you could convert it into a mutual fund. But that feels like a bait and switch. You know, I feel like if you want a mutual fund as a client, you would buy a mutual fund. <laughs> so for us to sell you an ETF and then convert it to a mutual fund doesn't feel very genuine. Um, so we haven't really wanted to pursue that path. But we do take capacity really seriously, you know, thinking about um, making sure we're only managing the amount of client assets that we think we can do well and be able to generate excess return or alpha for our clients. For us, it's really important to make sure that we have the ability to limit capacity. So um, I don't think that mutual funds are a perfect vehicle. We have, we've been experimenting with essentially every other vehicle, but ETFs we've stayed away from because of that inability to limit capacity. And you didn't actually mention that as a point of differentiation, but I think the willingness to close strategies is something that should be really important to allocators because you don't want to start off running a small cap fund and then all, all of a sudden it's got $12 billion and obviously it's not small cap anymore. Um, well, I do think, you know, actually, if we could, if we can insert part into the points of differentiation, I should have um, mentioned the number one thing for us when it comes to differentiation on top of, of course, investment philosophy, which we discussed, is the ability to align our interests with our clients. And that's something that we see as so critical. And we have conversations with our clients about it all the time. Um, in general, Diamond Hill employees are very well aligned with our clients. We invest in our own strategies. 
And um, we do also invest in our equity, as I mentioned, but the thing that I think is really differentiating is the extent to which our portfolio managers, our analyst team, and our firm at large invest alongside our clients. And you also mentioned that you tried a bunch of other things aside from ETFs. Maybe you can talk about the recent focus on CITs. For people who are not familiar with CITs, can you describe them just a little bit and discuss why you see an opportunity there for Diamond Hill? Sure. So a CIT essentially is a collective investment trust. It is a vehicle that is generally used today in the 401k market. And so if you are working with a larger 401k plan and you use a CIT instead of a mutual fund, you can sometimes reduce the expenses that the end clients face. And, you know, obviously expenses are a, a permanent wedge in the performance that investors see. And so to the extent that we can help reduce those expenses, we do try to do that. And um, we've really seen CITs start to grow um, as a result of the interest in 401ks and, you know, taking advantage of that vehicle where they can. Um, CITs are regulated by the OCC instead of by the SEC, which is part of what makes them a little bit more cost effective to deliver. And um, really, it, it also gives you the opportunity to, um, you know, to negotiate fees as appropriate based on the size of the client, which is essentially what happens in the institutional market. But of course, in the intermediary market, um, you know, in a mutual fund, there is one fee per share class, and that is the way mutual funds work. And is that interest in CITs, is that, the, is that at the expense of mutual funds, or is this a complement to your mutual fund offerings? How, how have you thought about that potential cannibalization issue? I mean, for us, I don't see vehicles as cannibalization. I, I think that what we're doing is trying to deliver our investment IP to our clients as efficiently as possible. And so if we can do that through different vehicles, we will. Um, so sometimes our clients were in a mutual fund and they request a CIT. So we launch one, which is actually relatively easy to do. Or they might be in the mutual fund and say, actually, we'd rather manage separate accounts for our clients. Can you deliver a model that we can use to implement this for our clients? So there are other ways that I'd say we work with our clients. Ultimately, for us, as long as we can get, um, you know, what we consider to be a fair price for what we are delivering to our clients in the form of our investment IP, um, we're really happy to work with whichever vehicle they would prefer. And as you think about the existing strategies, maybe more so than just the vehicles in which they're delivered, but just what you have in terms of the full offering at Diamond Hill, where do you think there's some obvious holes, or maybe that's not the right word, but places where you can add strategies that are like very logical given what you guys have done historically? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, you um, you may or may not have seen, but we do have an international equity strategy. And um, this strategy is very small today, but it, it has a five-year track record, track record. We've been incubating it um, over the last five years. And we have a team of analysts and a portfolio manager that are devoted to this strategy because we really believe our investment philosophy just makes sense around the world, not only in the U.S. And so while most of our strategies have... Um, you know, ended up being historically in U.S. equities, we're very happy to try to bring what we're doing to international markets. And um, and so far, I think it's going really well, but um, definitely much more to come on that front. And then the other area I'd say that we've been experimenting with um, over the last six or seven years now is fixed income. And, um, you know, depending on the area of fixed income you're looking at, we've had, um, we, we've had a long 
history of stories around fixed income. But what happened about seven years ago is that we brought on a team from JP Morgan who had been um, part of their the fixed income team over there. And we were able to pretty quickly um, with their leadership launch a core and short duration securitized strategy. And so those have a six or seven year track record now have done extremely well in what Fortunately, the market has handed us a wide variety of market environments for fixed income over that time period. And so that's really given us a lot of proof points that the way we're thinking about being valuation driven, even in fixed income and much more bottom up security selection specific has really worked and we believe will work over the long run. And so uh, I do feel like we've been able to bring what we do or how we think about investing to fixed income through that team as well. And, and is this, are you open, I guess, to, you talked about capacity constraints. Are you open to starting capacity constrained strategies? I feel like things like microcap are so small. It's like, you know, capacity is like 100 to 150 million. Why even bother? Is that something like, I'm just interested, is that a distraction or are you willing to go where place, places where the, you know, someone's got 200 billion would just say, that's why would we ever start a strategy that has that max capacity? How have you thought about that kind of opportunity cost of, of starting a new strategy like that? So we think about small cap and micro cap as areas of the market that together really give us the opportunity to deliver um, to deliver value for clients. And so we really try to look across the areas where we think we can add value. And um, we're open to having strategies that will help our other strategies as well. So for example, if you're looking at microcap companies, that gives you a lot of ideas that eventually could be eligible for your small cap strategy as well. And depending on how you define microcap, um, I think you can run microcap strategies relatively um, relatively effectively. I think it's possible to have a small and microcap um, franchise or set of strategies that does make a lot of economic sense. And most of our conversations about being about investing so far, and I want to switch a little bit to the business building side. So, and then kind of the capital allocation front. So this company generates a fair amount of cash each year. What is the process for evaluating the potential options for what to do with all of that cash? So we are in an industry, I think that very fortunately does um, generate a reasonable amount of cash. And what we've really tried to do over the course of Diamond Hills history is think about a few primary uses of that cash. First is to make sure that we have you know, sufficient cash on the balance sheet to, to make sure we're here for the long run for our clients. That's always, you know, that it sounds obvious now to say that that's our number one objective, but early in Diamond Hills history, it took some building to get to that point. So, uh, so you can understand why that would why that would carry through. Um, today, I'd say the form that really takes is making sure that we're making appropriate strategic investments in our future. So we do things like use our balance sheet cash to seed strategies that we want to um, that we want to build over time. It gives us time to demonstrate proof of concept and you know build a track record and things that are very important to our clients and also show how meaningful new strategies are to us. Now second, if we don't believe we have any needs um, in terms of our own immediate um, corporate needs, then we really look to um, whether we can buy our shares back at a discount. 
And, um, you know, we maintain our own intrinsic value estimate for Diamond Hill because we do think it's really important to have the discipline to only invest in your own shares when you think they're trading at a discount. And so that's something we take very seriously and we do buy back our shares when we think that is the case. And the third thing, really, the third priority is dividends. So where we feel like we have exhausted the potential for strategic investments and for buybacks, then we do return capital to our shareholders in the form of dividends. And um, just a couple of years ago, I initiated a quarterly dividend for the first time in Diamond Hill's history because we had such a consistent proven ability to generate the cash flow needed in order to do that and still be able to fund our ongoing business. And we have also historically uh, very frequently issued a special dividend, which really does depend on the excess cash that we have in any, any given year. So it's something that I would expect to change up or down over time, depending on where we close out each year. So a lot of companies don't like special dividends because uh, the uh, their perception is, is that the investors want something steady. And if it's volatile, they don't know how to value it or how to, you know, like what, what value does it really add? Why, what's what's so attractive to you about the special dividend as a way of returning capital when you have that excess cash? Well, first of all, our industry can be very volatile. So I think you can run your business very uneconomically by just holding on to too much cash because you want to be ready for any scenario that can transpire. And ultimately, that is very capital inefficient. And so I think one good thing about a special dividend is it prevents you from having to make an annual commitment, which to your point, then people want to see you continue. Um, and so for us, you know, when we put out a quarterly dividend, we did so at a level that we felt very comfortable we could continue based on everything we could foresee at the time. But ultimately, um, the special dividend still allows you to run your business capital efficiently, because if you do end up with excess cash, you still have a, a mechanism to return that to shareholders. And I have one question that is almost, I apologize, almost a personal curiosity. But when you say that you're, you invest in teams and strategies with your own balance sheet, what does that actually look like? Are you willing to put together a three-person team even before you have assets? Is Do you need to have a, you know, the strategy working on paper for 12 months before you're willing to do that. I'm interested in like, you know, there's always this chicken and the egg. Well, you want the assets, but if you wait for the assets to get the people, then then maybe you're, it's self-defeating. So how have you, you know, tradition as over your three years or how have you thought about that internal seating mechanism? So we really feel in order to go into a new area that we have to have confidence in two things. One, that we have the investment talent to be able to deliver on it. And two, that there's sufficient client interest that it could be viable at some point. Um, you know, it's it's great to have a, a theoretical portfolio that your investment team really wants to run. But if we can't uncover the clients who are interested in investing like that, then ultimately it's not something we can make economical. So we try to, we have a whole process around new product development where we evaluate all of these things. And I mean, nothing is, um, there's no crystal ball. So you're, you're always making estimates and, you know, trying to predict what future markets are going to bring. Um, but ultimately those are the things we're really looking for. We absolutely will invest in a multi-person team uh, without having a track record yet. And it is kind of what we did with fixed income. I mean, we obviously the team had been investing elsewhere. So we had a lot of confidence that, you know, when they came on board at Diamond Hill, they, they would very quickly hit the ground running. 
Um, and they did in terms of performance, but it took really a good four to five years before uh, the assets started to become more meaningful. So it, it is something that I think, you know, if you look at firms in our industry, it's either in the first year you raise multiple billions of dollars, or it's a, a long, slow process of finding the clients who think like you do, who want to invest the way you think about investing and really making sure that you're getting alignment between their long-term perspective and yours. So um, anyway, so that's just one example. I mean, I'd say with international, what we did initially was we took people who were on our US equity team and kind of uh, tried to have them work on international as well. So they were sort of, you know, dual hatting their responsibilities for a little bit um, of time. And I think that worked for a little while, but ultimately we said, we think this is going to work and and it's only going to work with focus. And so that's when we really were able to kind of carve off a team and say, let's, let's see if we can do this. And then one more question on the capital allocation front. I think one of the most interesting topics in investment management right now is consolidation. I don't think there's any secret that there's a number of headwinds in our industry, whether it's fee pressure, whether it's the move from active to passive, whether it's the move from public equity to private equity. I mean, there's there's been a lot of headwinds in our face. And I think any industry that's going under undergoing that many headwinds, I think consolidation makes a fair amount of sense. And it's almost like there has to be such shaking out. How have you thought about Diamond Hill's ability, willingness, desire to be a consolidator within that um, kind of framework? Yes, I mean, I would say that overall, we believe that our, our value proposition to clients is primarily about what we're doing from an investment standpoint, and secondarily, but also as important, what we're doing to make sure that our clients have a great experience. And that client experience is um, something that you can define pretty broadly, right? It's not only about the team who's actually interfacing with the client on a day-to-day basis, but it's also about making sure we have the compliance policies that make that easy to do and that our trading team is acting as efficiently as possible so we can keep our fees as low as possible, et cetera. So it kind of ends up permeating throughout the whole firm. Um, The only way I'd say that it would make sense for us to kind of broaden that out would be if we were able to uncover, you know, teams or firms that had that same alignment with their clients, that ability to really put client interests first, to think about the long-term perspective and the long-term client outcomes. And honestly, you just don't come across that very often in our industry. So um, I think, you know, it's something I've said before, we're very open to conversations and we've had lots of conversations, but the reality is that it's very, very hard to get from conversation to implementation. And that's by design. What you're talking about is investing culture. And I think people outside of the industry don't appreciate how different cultures can be, not only from what you, you know, what you see from the outside, what's going on inside, but across firms, it can be hugely different. So in, t- in terms of the culture within the investment team at Diamond Hill, what would you say are the most important elements you try to instill consistently? Yeah, well, I feel like a little bit of a broken record with some of these, but you know, clearly long-termism, right? Somebody who comes in uh, to our analyst team and is pitching an idea that, you know, well, this has a catalyst, it's going to work out in the next two quarters is just, it's the opposite of what our portfolio managers are looking to, to hear. And so that long-termism is really important. Um, second, I would say um, 
certainly a sense of ownership and really being able to um, to think like an owner of the business, which I think kind of goes along with being, you know, having a long-term perspective, but also is really about, um, you know, how you would want the owners to think and the cash flow streams to work if you were the sole owner of a business, um, which does get to governance a little bit as well, too. So, you know, sometimes when you come across businesses that are, you know, majority family owned, even though they're obviously they have to be publicly traded to be eligible to be included in our strategies. Um, sometimes these these majority family owned businesses are amazing investments because you have incredible alignment with the people who are running the business. And other times they're horrific investments because you have somebody who's, you know, kind of taking advantage of the, the fact that the public shareholders do not have the ability to really make any decisions with their votes. And so that's where I think the, the culture behind having good governance and the companies that we invest in is really important. Um, and a third thing I'd say really is just a, a culture of integrity. You know, we need our analysts to feel comfortable doing the work that they need to do to be able to come with a great idea and for our portfolio managers to be able to, um, you know, to ask questions and fire off different perspectives and ways of thinking about things and for everybody to be able to look at that objectively and get to what is the right answer for this client portfolio. Um, so Anyway, there's a, there's a lot of elements I'd say to our culture that are are critically important. Um, the last one I just want to mention is humility. Um, you know, we're we are based in the Midwest. We are a firm of people who I think are very devoted to doing what's right for our clients, but also doing so in a way that we know each of us are just a small part of the process of what creates great client outcomes. And that really permeates how our investment team interacts with each other and certainly how we aspire to interact with each other. Nobody's perfectly like their values all the time, but I think you know, really just trying to make sure that we're reinforcing the, the importance of the contributions that the teams are making. And there's one other element that I think maybe you could add to and discuss is the idea of being a boutique. So I work for what I think of as a, a small boutique firm for 12 years. And I thought it was kind of funny that that 28 billion uh, Diamond Hills considers itself a, a boutique. I, I'm, I'm more interested in, in the essence of a boutique that you want to keep regardless of how big the asset base gets. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we have the opportunity to um, know everybody in the firm. We have 130 people. Everybody knows, you know, essentially everyone else at the entire company. It gets a little harder with permanently remote workers, but we're, you know, we are bringing everybody together in person a couple times a year to really make sure we're building the connections necessary for remote work to, um, you know, to work for us. But ultimately, I'd say um, that boutique mindset really is about doing whatever it takes to result in a great client outcome, to making sure that we we all operate with the integrity to um, feel good about the way we're making investment decisions, the way we're making client decisions, the way we're running the rest of the firm. And I just think that's a really important element to being a boutique. There is this um, pressure in our industry now to be what, what um, a good friend of mine in the industry often calls big business. And, you know, there are so many behemoths in our industry now in a way that really didn't exist to the same extent 20 or 30 years ago. And what that ultimately means is that most clients are interacting with a business. They're not interacting with 
a handful of people who are really trying to do the right thing for them and help their end clients have a great experience. And I think we can we can be different in that regard. We can keep that focus on a great client experience. And I think that's it's just something that's different when you become a big business. And you continue to go back to the client first perspective. You've been in the industry um, for a while now and you've survived a number of cycles. Maybe you can talk about how your clients' needs and wants, either the retail investors we talked about or the institutional investors we discussed, how have those changed over maybe the last 5, 10, 15 years in, in your, in your perspective, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I do think that um, all clients are looking for investment management um, you know, from their investment manager, they're looking for outperformance. They're looking for um, something that they can tell their clients it was a good decision on their part and, you know, that they can stand behind. And um, one thing that's made that really challenging over the last decade or even longer is that, um, you know, value investing has been a lot less in favor over that time period than growth investing. And so that's something that I think um, can be a challenge for our clients if they're thinking about us as, you know, filling the category of value, even though, as I as I mentioned, we really consider ourselves intrinsic value investors. It's different, but it still goes enough in the same direction that, um, you know, people do consider us as value investors from time to time. And so I think that that need for us to um, to fill the value investing box is something that has come up more as this time period of value underperforming has gone on. Um, I do. I firmly believe that focusing on intrinsic value is the way to invest for the long term. So I feel very confident that ultimately this focus will will play out to our clients advantage. But, you know, you do have to make sure that you are working with clients who are patient enough to be willing to see through what has been, I would say, a very, very long cycle. And how do you resist the temptation to add a growth team from somewhere just as a hedge? I mean, my guess is that some investment meeting at some point, someone said, wow, it'd be really nice if we had a growth team right now. Um how, how would something like that be assessed internally, you know, as as, more, as a potential hedge against, you know, value being a d difficult place to be over the next five or 10 years is almost as bad as it's been over the last decade? Well, I would say that all I would have to do is consult with a few key portfolio managers about how they would feel. And um, I can assure you that we are all aligned that we believe intrinsic value is the right way to think about equity investing. And we think even evaluation orientation is important on the fixed income side as well. And we fundamentally believe this to our core. And so I think it's just um, it's just not for us to fill the, the growth box. And we will buy growthy companies if they're trading at a discount to intrinsic value. And we like to do that. And that's something, you know, I think that does happen from time to time. Um, but it is it's it gets more challenging in years like this where you see, you know, the indexes becoming super concentrated and growth names outperforming so massively. But in reality, I mean, we're not interested in buying something that's trading at 30 plus times revenue. Um, so that's just it's just a big challenge. And kind of style box aside. There's no question that alternatives, especially private strategies, have taken up a larger portion of allocators' portfolios over time. How have you thought about incorporating strategies other than long-only public equities in the Diamond Hill offerings? 
We have um, done a lot of thinking around private markets. And, you know, as you can imagine, it comes up a lot given how much interest is being placed in private equity, private credit, VC, et cetera. And um, ultimately, we feel very strongly that we need to stick to what we are good at. And we know what we're good at is public equity and fixed income investing. And um, those are the things that we feel that we can do well for our clients. And it's, it's great that there are so many more private equity offerings for them or private credit offerings for them now than there were, you know, 10 years ago. But that is not an area where we feel like we can add value or build a moat. And I think there's a lot of other firms working very rapidly to do that. And we are happy to sit on the sidelines of that and let them do that. Fair enough. I mean, o- over the interviews we've done, I think the value of focus has been discussed over and over again and not getting outside of your circle of competence. But it's certainly very topical in the industry now as, as you know, private credit is the hot thing. And, you know, who, yes. who knows who knows what the next hot thing is going to be um, that, that, that may not fit with your strategy. Well, actually, um, I just met with a um, I, I was meeting with an advisor a week or two ago and he said, wait, you don't want to pitch me a private credit strategy. You're the only person who's come in here this week who wants to talk about something other than private credit. And I think that says a lot. I don't know exactly what yet, but. <laughs> uh, it, it probably means that we're getting close to the top in in this demand for private credit, because as we all know, the more capital that travels into a specific market, the lower the returns get. So I, that, that would just be my editorialism there. Uh, so if we take a step back and think about Diamond Hill as a public company, what are three or four things you think this company absolutely has to get right over the next few years for the stock to be a good uh, investment for both your employees and your share and, you know, outside shareholders? I mean, first of all, I think we have to do a great job delivering for our clients. And so that really is the number one thing that we're focused on. That means performance. It means the whole client experience, as I mentioned earlier. It really even also means making sure we get our operating model right so that as we continue to grow in fixed income, we have all of the operational groundwork laid to be able to meet those clients' needs just as effectively as we've been able to do on the equity side over the last 20 plus years. So that's one one really key area is really deliver on our clients' expectations. The second I'd say is that I do think that growth is really important. Um, We are not a firm that would ever grow for growth's sake. And um, so I I do not take lightly that I am putting growth out there as an objective. But what I think is important is to strive for a sustainable level of organic growth, because it means that clients are continuing to trust in what you do and are willing to bring new assets. It also means that you can attract better and attract and retain better employees um, because people want to be part of a firm that is growing and that has future potential. And so having making sure we stay focused on you know, adding assets and the strategies we have, continually evaluating whether there are other areas we could launch new strategies over time is something that's really important to us. And the third thing I'd say is diversification. And this is one that, you know, as as I mentioned, we've been really focused on the on continuing to grow in fixed income. We've started to see some success there, but it's still very early days. Uh, we're just over three billion in fixed income, which you know was from a very very low base. <laughs> but um, you know, I think we we have a long runway ahead before we think fixed income is anywhere close to capacity. So that's an area that we're really focused on. 
um, as well as, as I mentioned earlier, international equity, where we're literally just getting started. And I know you've only been in the seat for you know, a little over three years, but I'd love to hear about any errors of either omission or commission that really stand out. Things that, things where, that you wish that you could have back, uh, if that's occurred at all over the short time you've been there. So I think there's a few areas where we could put a lot more focus in the future or things where we are continuing to learn where we can do them better. And one is around making sure we have all of the most appropriate data and analytics to make the decisions that we need to make. I mentioned earlier how we've invested a lot in doing this on the marketing and distribution side, and we've seen some benefits from that. Um, but we want to continue to invest in the ability to analyze the benefits from it and uh, make sure we have the right data to give us some idea of what our um, assets under management might look like had we not made those investments, for example, or if we didn't run a campaign, how, you know, how much would that have an impact on whether we see flows in our strategies, for example. And this is a hard thing to know because you're definitely dealing with a, um, a part of the market where you can't possibly have a control group, right? You don't know whether you would have had more or less inflows if you didn't do something because you never get that time period back. But what you can know is, for example, that we did a webinar where um, we had our portfolio managers speak and we had about 300 attendees a couple of quarters ago. Um, then we changed the way we were sending out information about that uh, webinar a couple of quarters later, and we had over a thousand people register for the call. So there's little things like that where we can get some anecdotal idea. We can be more regimented about that. And so that's one of the things that we're continually working to improve. Um, another really is around how we think about um, some of the underlying data that we use to analyze our business. And um, you know, we're very, very tight from a finance perspective, as I mentioned, but I think there's always more improvement that, that a firm can make and including us, around having all of the right um, kind of FP&A or financial planning and analysis tools that you need in order to really understand some of the underlying drivers of your business. A business like ours has very few key drivers. So you don't necessarily need to spend a ton of time analyzing, you know, could you have paid less for rent or something, right? It's just not a sufficiently material line item. But that doesn't mean that there aren't new ways to look at the data that you have or new ways to think about how different scenarios can play out over time. And so we're really putting some putting some effort behind that as well. And on the topic of Heather Brilliant as a leader, I'm interested in some of the critical things that you may have had to rethink or change your position on over the years as it relates to how to attract and incentivize and maintain a motivated uh uh, employee base? Yes. Well, one thing I would say about me as a leader is that I prefer to be very hands-off. I love to make sure I have great a great team in place, and I love to give them as much latitude as possible to make decisions in their areas and really run with things. And sometimes what that means as for me as a leader is that I miss things, or it might take me longer to notice if somebody's struggling, if they're not comfortable coming to me and, and, and admitting it. Um, and so that's something I'd say I've been really honing my ability to make sure I have um, more of a pulse where somebody does need help or is struggling so that I can intervene sooner before it becomes a bigger issue or before it becomes an issue that other people might notice. Um, Another thing I'd say is I am a very transparent person. I would have 
um, even happily told you twice as many things on this call as we already discussed. But ultimately, um, you know, as the CEO of a public company, there are certain topics that I have to be more re restrained on. And that is fine, but it's, it is interesting because it runs a little bit counter to my natural instincts, which are to really just be very transparent, open and direct. And so generally, I think those are very good characteristics as a leader. It's just when you're, when you're running a public company, you also have to very carefully know the line of where, uh, where that transparency has to end. And one more quick one on leadership. A lot of the managers we've had on the show, th those firms don't necessarily have a CEO. There's a CIO and it's mostly investment driven. I think a lot of people will be curious about how this, the CEO of a public company inter kind of interacts with, um, interfaces with the investment teams. Like what, how does that, how does that part of your, your role work? Yes. Well, so it was very important to Diamond Hill when they were looking to hire an, a, an external CEO that this person have an investment background. And I can totally understand why they felt that way, because it has been a very investment driven firm. And in order to really make sure that the investment team would have the, the latitude that they need in order to make great investment decisions, they did not want somebody coming in and kind of saying, here's how we're going to do things. So um, that was very clear to me from the beginning. And I, I would say, fortunately, I have enough investment background, having spent about a decade as an equity analyst myself, where I have a, a very deep understanding of a lot of the roles and functions that we have here. But I also um, did not ever serve as a portfolio manager. And so I'm also very respectful that there are people who know a lot more than I do about today's markets, what the investment opportunities are now, and how we should be um, you know, how we should be running our portfolios. So I would say it's a very healthy, respectful deference on my part to our PMs that they know best in making our investment decisions. And on their part to me that I know best in running the firm and really understanding all the other moving parts of our business. I think every equity analyst who who's ever, you know, worked in the business has had, you know, thoughts about being a CEO and how they would do things differently. What, what do you think is the hardest thing for you to learn coming from, you know, the, just the, the, the buy side analyst side to, to being a public company CEO? What, what elements do you just, are you not trained for, you know, being someone who analyzes businesses all day? Well, first of all, I think actually the, the trajectory I ended up being on in order to get here was very helpful in that regard, because my first CEO role was CEO of a division um, at Morningstar. And so, um, and even before that, I was actually running an equity research team. So I started out, you know, leading equity analysts and thinking, wow, this is a, a population that can be very skeptical. They have lots of questions. They really want to dive into the details, right? And then when I started running uh, Morningstar in Australia and New Zealand, I, I really started learning about the types of questions that you tend to get from the distribution side of the business and, you know, how are we going to grow and where is the future going to come from and how can you make sure you're articulating a great strategy? And um, so really, I feel like when I came to Diamond Hill, I was kind of able to bring that all together in a way that um, that has been helpful to have that background. Also, I had the really good fortune of spending seven years on the board of CFA Institute and while CFA Institute is, um, you know, a nonprofit entity in our industry, 
um, the board is still very much run with a high standard around governance and just being on that board and chairing that board and, and participating in some CEO searches gave me so much perspective now that I report to a board that um, I just think it would have been very challenging to succeed with all the dimensions of this role without those experiences. Thank you for that. That's a really interesting perspective. That that's hard to it's hard for uh, you know someone who's sitting in the analyst seat to to develop those skills. Uh, we you know I think we've gone through almost all of our questions, which is uh, a new a new one for me. Uh, so we're going to close with the question that we always end with: What do you think is the most underappreciated aspect of Diamond Hill? I think the most underappreciated aspect is that if we just are able to grow our existing strategies to capacity we have more than $100 billion of capacity. And that means there's really a tremendous amount of potential for us as a business to keep on delivering for our clients, to bring more clients into the fold, and to be able to really focus on investing the way we think is great. And that doesn't even require us launching any new strategies. So I think that's just a really exciting potential for the future of the firm. Investment management being one of the most scalable businesses ever and a ton of operating leverage. So my guess is what you're saying is that earnings power would be much, much enhanced at, at, at $100 billion in AUM. I'm not sure if I can say that, but you probably can. Yes, I can say that. <laughs> uh, well, Heather, this has been a wonderful interview. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been great to hear about your own personal journey in addition to um, you know the pivots and the, the changes that have been made at Diamond Health. So thanks again for being on Compounders and, and we're gonna be watching this company closely over the years. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. It was a pleasure talking to you.